Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a look at how the design of Gotham City has changed throughout each incarnation of Batman, reflecting the soul and vengeance of the caped crusader. Plus, the technicolor array of blood throughout the animal kingdom, and your chance to take your name to the moon. Not in an investing sense, like literally, NASA will put your name on Artemis 1. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The Batman officially comes out on Friday, but is already playing in many theaters around the world. In the lead-up to its release, Batman articles have abounded online. And not specifically about the new movie, but just about any Batman fact or hot take you could imagine. And after all, it's a pretty enormous arsenal to pull from, having been consistently churning out content since 1939. The Ringer, in particular, has dedicated this week to digging into the history of the Caped Crusader, and I was especially intrigued by a piece published on Tuesday about how all the different Batman adaptations over the years have designed Gotham City. Now, it's kind of a running joke that Spider-Man would only work as a superhero in New York City, or at least a city, with enough skyscrapers and vertical infrastructure for him to latch his webs onto. And in a less tangible, more narrative way, Batman would only work in Gotham. The city defines his raison d'etre, the tragic murder of his parents and his lifelong quest to avenge them by ridding the city of evil. Coined in our real world by writer Washington Irving as a nickname for New York City, Gotham was not originally intended as a compliment. Most of Irving's writings were satirical. As New York Public Library explains, quote, The word Gotham actually dates back to medieval England. English proverbs tell of a village called Gotham or Gotham, meaning goat's town in Old Anglo-Saxon. Folk tales of the Middle Ages make Gotham out to be a village of simple-minded fools, perhaps because the goat was considered a foolish animal. Some tales describe the denizens of Gotham as only playing the fool, a ruse to avert the wrath of the sinister King John. Edwin Burroughs, co-author of Gotham, A History of New York City to 1898, poses that, quote, it was doubtless this more beguiling, if tricksterish, sense of Gotham that Manhattanites assumed as an acceptable nickname, end quote. While Gotham would go in and out of popularity as a nickname for the city, by the time it was adopted as the name for Batman's home, most people had forgotten the original and secondary meaning of the word and instead began to associate it with the sort of noir side of New York City depicted in Batman. Gotham was used as the name of Batman's home from the very beginning, but it took a few years before it was used exclusively and all mentions of New York City were otherwise stopped. Co-creator Bill Finger once said that despite its obvious analog, they didn't call it New York because they wanted anybody in any city to identify with it. And like Batman has taken on many forms in the many arcs and adaptations, Gotham has followed suit, acting as an infrastructural manifestation of each respective Batman who defends it. Quoting The Ringer, Throughout the TV movies of the 1940s and later, during Batman's campy 1960s televised run, Gotham had little shape or scope. Despite referencing New York-based landmarks, Adam West's sunlit adventures, mostly shot on Hollywood stages, looked like they took place in a beach town that boasted more trees than skyscrapers and rendered Batman's signature shadowy presence useless. 
Not until the 1970s, when Dennis O'Neill began authoring the comics, did Gotham gain a vertical identity and become integral to Batman's pivot into darkness. As O'Neill later distinguished, Gotham took on the shape of Manhattan below 14th Street at 3 a.m. November 28th in a cold year, exuding a timelessness with its 19th century gargoyle-heavy architecture. Conversely, O'Neill considered the Art Deco metropolis, Superman's City of Tomorrow, as Manhattan on the brightest, sunniest July day of the year. These stark contrasts, along with an established continuity of landmarks like Crime Alley and Arkham Asylum, peaked during Frank Miller's 1986 limited comic series The Dark Knight Returns, which interrogated an older Batman's traumatized psyche manifested in Gotham's terrorized and sickly streets. Three years later, Burton and production designer Anton First plastered a similar hellscape onto the big screen, establishing Gotham as grotesque, cloistered, and rotting. Influenced by Fritz Lang's Metropolis, First's initial sketches show an almost impenetrable collection of buildings, exemplifying the idea that Gotham was... All of the elements of Manhattan exaggerated, he told Bomb Magazine. Inspired by New York's whiplash of classical structures sitting on top of filth and grime, first imagined what it would have been like if it had been run by a criminal organization for a long time. End quote. True to Burton form, the city is a blend of German Expressionism, Italian Futurism, Noir, and the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. The Ringer describes it as suffocating, surrealist, and liable to be thrown into chaos at any moment. Gotham got even darker with the Burton sequel Batman Returns, but when Joel Schumacher took the reins for Batman Forever, the studio wanted a return to the bright, camp Batman of the 60s, which they thought would play better with kids. Their goal was a living comic book. Production designer Barbara Ling was inspired by Russian constructivism and Japanese architecture. The Ringer calls it, quote, a kid-friendly theme park of wacky villainy, end quote. But for all that it differed from the two Burton films, it also built on top of them, literally. For each film, they just kept adding more and more to exaggerate the size and emphasize the idea of corrupt institutions just building on top of one another. Ling and Schumacher went even further with the bright colors on Batman and Robin, which even Ling admits kind of got away from them. It went too far into the gaudy kids theme park. And so it should be no surprise that 10 years later, Christopher Nolan made a sharp U-turn into the dark, gritty cityscape. Nolan was also the first to further erase the ties between Gotham and New York City, avoiding iconic New York City landmarks and being inspired by major cities all around the world, most specifically Chicago. But despite shooting on location in the Windy City and making heavy use of its unique infrastructure, for the third film in the Nolan trilogy, they were back to New York, also drawing inspiration from Pittsburgh. And when Zack Snyder was tasked with creating Gotham once again for Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, it was Detroit that primarily provided the inspiration. As James Chinlin, production designer for the most recent film, The Batman, says of the many different takes on Gotham, quote, As production designers, it's the most exciting challenge you could possibly be presented with, to create your own take on such a loved city. At the end of the day, they all combine to create this universal Gotham, end quote. And Shinlin's and Reeves's take is one that tries to look like a real American city while also having some more visually striking architecture to play with. Haunting shapes, Shinlin called them. 
They took inspiration from Liverpool and Glasgow in addition to New York City. There are elevated trains, high-rises, and cathedral towers. Chinlin explains, quote, We were playing with Gotham as having this pre-war boom time, looking at a lot of architecture from movie palaces where we could play with ornaments and shapes in different ways. It created this idea that the city has fallen on hard times and had various booms and busts along the way with a lot of unfinished skyscrapers and partially complete construction projects. End quote. But what really struck me in their design is that they want to emphasize the people of Gotham, not just Batman victims and villains, but the everyday people who live there. Quoting The Ringer, The Batman gives a more holistic vision of Gotham. There are scenes in apartments, nightclubs, train stations, city halls, and sports arenas that suggest its citizens are not all binary perpetrators or victims of crime. It's a welcome change of pace from previous depictions of Gotham as a strictly hierarchical high and low caste society relying solely on Bruce Wayne's upper crust political connections and unseemly wealth, and then on Batman to clean up its streets. The citizens we see are the only ones that matter to Batman, the people that attend society functions, and the people he saves on the street, film studies author and professor Will Brooker says of the previous movies. I don't get a great sense of who Gothamites are and why they would want to live there. End quote. Now, not having seen the new movie yet, I can't tell how well they really achieved portraying the humanity in the residents of Gotham, but I like the intent. The Ringer points out how the villain's methods and Batman's technologies have often reflected the social and political climates of the time. From the Reagan-era street crime in the Burton films to the terrorist League of Shadows organization in Batman Begins. This latest installment will feature the dark web and facial recognition technology. In an era in which anyone can be a hero or a villain online, it tracks that the Batman would make an effort to show more everyday people in Gotham, because despite what the loud, garish costumes of the Schumacher movies would have you believe, villainous behavior can be lurking behind even the most ordinary-looking person. Fortunately, for our real world, you likewise don't need to hide behind a mask to be a hero. Bruce Wayne may be blue-blooded in the most traditional sense thanks to his enormously wealthy inheritance, but for an actually blue-blooded creature, you'd have to turn to the Atlantic horseshoe crab, and also squids and octopuses. The hemocyanin protein that transports oxygen in their blood contains copper and is also colorless, but when it binds with oxygen, it turns blue. Squids, octopuses, and Atlantic horseshoe crabs aren't the only ones with uniquely colored blood, though. Some mollusks have purple-pinkish blood thanks to the hemerythrin in their blood, and the reptilian green tree skinks from New Guinea have blood that is lime green. Different mechanisms result in different colored blood. In the case of the hemocyanin, it's basically like hemoglobin in humans. Quoting National Geographic, Hemocyanin, which evolved nearly 2.5 billion years ago, originally served to detoxify oxygen for primordial organisms in Earth's anaerobic or low-oxygen environment, says Christopher Coates, a comparative immunologist at Swansea University. Later, when the atmosphere became more oxygen-rich, the protein evolved again to deliver oxygen throughout an organism's body. Hemoglobin evolved much later, possibly about 400 million years ago. Coates says it likely came about because vertebrates have more complex respiratory systems than do simple organisms. And indeed, most mammal, fish, reptile, amphibian, and bird blood is red because of hemoglobin, whose protein is made of hemes, or iron-containing molecules, that fuse with oxygen. 
end quote. But those green tree skinks, kind of like lizards with the lime green blood, that is actually caused by a buildup of bile pigments. Called biliverdin, it's the waste product of broken down red blood cells, and in most animals, it would be processed by the liver, and if it ever built up as much as it does in the skinks, that animal, like us humans for example, would be dead. In the case of the skinks though, it doesn't just make their blood lime green, their bones, mouths, tongues, and even more are also lime green. And part of why scientists think they've developed this is to help avoid parasites, particularly malaria-causing ones. And there are a lot of unique uses for or features of blood that have developed in animals for their own safety. Horned lizards, Asian lady beetles, and bloody-nosed beetles all shoot blood out of various body parts when they're threatened by a predator. Spurting from their eyes, mouths, or even leg joints, the expulsion is meant to surprise and, I mean, who knows, maybe even gross out the predator. Conversely, there are some creatures that don't even have blood like insects. Quoting again, Instead, insects have a comparable fluid called hemolymph, which transports hormones and gases through their system, except for oxygen. They absorb that directly through openings along their sides or back. It's like they have a line of nostrils down the side of their body, says Julie Peterson, an entomologist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Hemolymph can have yellowish or bluish-green pigments that come from the insect's plant diets, end quote. Flatworms, too, lack an entire circulatory system, exchanging gas through their skin. Sea stars and sea cucumbers use water in the place of blood to move gases and nutrients through their systems. Antarctic ice fish do have blood, but it's completely lacking in pigment due to a genetic mutation that removed their hemoglobin. With so many incredible different types of circulatory systems in nature, it's no surprise that many scientists over the years have figured out applications for different animals' unique blood. The best example is those Atlantic horseshoe crabs. Their hemocyanin-rich blood clots when it comes in contact with bacterial toxins, so it's widely used in testing medicines to make sure they're free of contaminants. But, you know, bleeding crabs, a process that can kill them, is not super ethical, so National Geographic notes that scientists are also working on developing a synthetic version of the blue blood to eventually use instead. And if you want to see how truly bright blue their blood is, check out the video in the National Geographic article in the show notes. It's really something. To the moon! For all of us non-astronaut, non-billionaires, that is sadly a place we will probably never physically go. However, NASA has just announced a way for you to at least send your name to the moon. On board Artemis 1, the uncrewed test flight that will kick off the agency's new lunar era, NASA will pack a flash drive that will include the names of anyone who signs up. And I should clarify that two doesn't mean on. Artemis is actually going around the moon, not ever landing on it. But signing up doesn't cost anything. You literally just enter your first name, last name, and a unique PIN code to use to access your boarding pass in the future. Once you hit submit, you get that boarding pass, which is a JPEG of a ticket for Artemis 1, launching on the SLS at the Kennedy Space Center. Conveniently, instead of putting a launch date on the ticket, it just says boarding now. That's because right now, Artemis 1 is scheduled to launch sometime in May, but it's been delayed many, many times. The delays are in part because it will also be the first test of the new Space Launch System, or SLS, the Mega Rocket, which is the successor to the retired Space Shuttle and will serve as NASA's primary launch vehicle for deep space exploration going forward. 
But when Artemis 1 finally launches, you can have your name blasting off as well as part of history. After all, the Artemis program is the first time humans have returned to the moon since the early 70s, and the program plans to send the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. Plus, as NASA describes the mission on their site, quote, During this flight, the spacecraft will launch on the most powerful rocket in the world and fly farther than any spacecraft built for humans has ever flown. It will travel 280,000 miles from Earth, thousands of miles beyond the moon over the course of about a four to six week mission. Orion will stay in space longer than any ship for astronauts has done without docking to a space station and return home faster and hotter than ever before. End quote. Orion being the name of the spacecraft on the mission. And of course, having your name on a flash drive isn't like as exciting as having your name engraved in something that will be placed on the moon or, you know, actually going to the moon yourself. But it's a fun way for NASA to drum up excitement, and when they offered a similar thing for the Mars InSight lander in 2017, over 2 million people signed up. As the title of a Mashable article about the promotion sums it up, quote, NASA is offering to fly your name around the moon because, sure, why not? Well, that's going to do it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.